The subject of our passage tonight is the, uh, the gravity of sin and the difficulty of doing the right thing. Uh, I, you know, I don't think there's anybody here that would need to be convinced that doing the right thing is not always an easy thing to do. But, uh, you, you know, we live in a culture right now where uh, there, there, is, there is recognition that things are broken, that there are some things that are unraveling. There are some things that, that are coming loose and that there are some changes that need to take place. And uh, books on virtue back in the 90s, uh, William Bennett's book on virtue and, and uh, books similar to that have, have, have sold like wildfire. And the, the problem, though, is that uh, at the same time, you know, when people are, are recognizing the need for virtue and then, you know, choosing some virtue, uh, that, you know, there's just really all kinds of folks that are saying, you know, I know what kind of of a good life a good person should live and 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 that's how I'm living and they say you know when it comes to living this virtuous life no problem you know I'm doing it uh, to hear that uh, when I hear that what I want to say is that if you believe that you're living this great life the right kind of life and it's easy, and that you're doing it, uh, you probably don't know yourself. And that's, uh, in part, what our text is about tonight. And there are just really three main points, We're gonna j and, and they need some uh, elaboration, and so I'm going to jump right into it. Uh, the, the first thing that John tells us in this text that, that um, Alan read for us tonight is that destruction came before salvation, or that Things need to be destroyed before they are saved. The original plan, as you know, and now we're, we're out of First John, we're back in Genesis chapter 3. The original plan, as you know, was for God to live with His creatures. And Satan tried to derail that plan, and he did so by convincing Adam and Eve to sever their relationship with God, to not trust God, to not be obedient to God, to be obedient to God's Word, to God's instruction. And so everything just kind of falls apart at that point. And the big question as we read it today, as we read first and second uh, the chapters of Genesis, we know that it's good. We get to the beginning of the third chapter and it all goes uh, awry. The question is, what is God going to do? What will He do about this? Will He abandon His plan to, to live with His creatures or will He try to redeem it? And right here in the Garden of Eden, God gives the answer. I direct you to the third chapter, verse 14, verse 15. The Lord, said to God, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will what? Crush your head. He will crush your head. The one that God is talking about, the one who will come, the one who will redeem humanity, is the one who will crush or destroy the tempter. And so what this, uh, what is known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel, means is that God is not going to abandon the plan, but there's going to be a counter-offensive that is launched. And the D-Day, in a manner of speaking, the D-Day of redemption was when Jesus appeared in Bethlehem as a baby. Now that word appeared, if you were being uh, listening intently and uh, sensitively to the text that was read, that word appear shows up a lot. 
We find that word a couple of times in this text. In verse 2, though, it appears, or uh, the word appear refers to Jesus' second coming. But at the beginning of verse 5, it's not that second coming, but the first coming. It's the incarnation. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. But you know that He appeared, past tense, so that He might take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. Now look at the end of verse 8. The reason the Son of God, what? Appeared was to what? Destroy. What? There it is. Was to destroy the devil's work. He appeared to take away our sin and to destroy the devil's work. You know, the Christmas holiday is coming up this next month. Believe it or not, it's that time of the year again. Believe it or not, it's right on us. But for the Christian, whenever we think about the birth of Jesus, it, it's more than just nativity scene. It's more than just lights. It is a reminder that when Jesus appeared, the reason He appeared was to destroy the work of Satan. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, in a verse that we've been looking at on Wednesday nights in our, our uh, Life and Teachings of Jesus class, she will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will what? He will save his people from their, say it, sins. Later, after Jesus enters adulthood, John the Baptist is with some of his disciples. When he sees Jesus walking along the street and he grabs his disciples by their collars and shakes them and says, look, I want you to see this. And in the first chapter of John, he says, look, behold, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. In other words, Jesus' mission was to search out and destroy that which was breaking fellowship with God and His creatures. The thing that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the beginning of time. That sin that separates us from God. Now here's the thing. Jesus is not trying to hide from Satan. Jesus is not trying to camouflage Himself and to stay under the radar so that Satan doesn't recognize Him or, or uh, uh, you know, reveal Him for who He is and kind of mess up the plans. Jesus is pursuing Satan. That's why, he left, that's why He left heaven. It is the Spirit of God that leads Him out into the wilderness where He is tempted by Satan and overcomes Him. And shortly after that, when Jesus begins His ministry in Capernaum, He's teaching in a synagogue in Mark chapter 1. And He's teaching and teaching and teaching, and everybody's amazed. Word begins to spread. This fantastic teacher showed up this morning. And as they're talking about this great teaching, there's this demon-possessed man that enters the synagogue, and he cries out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to what? Have you come to what? Destroy us. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And when Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee with His disciples, they encounter a demon-possessed man. And when He saw Jesus at a distance, this demon-possessed man, He runs to Jesus and He falls on His feet and He cries out in Mark chapter 5, verse 6, He shouted at the top of His voice, What do you want with Me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you will not torture Me. Now we speed forward some decades. We're in John's church in Asia Minor. And there are some people, as we've already seen, who did not really believe the right kinds of things about Christ. They did not believe the right kinds of things about the gospel. Therefore, because they didn't believe a certain set of things that are basic and essential to salvation, to the faith, to being a Christian, they're not part of it, the church. And, and, and because they did not get that part right on Christ, 
coming in the flesh, because they didn't get the part right about Jesus and the gospel, they also are not getting the part on sin correct. They're not looking at sin the way that, that Christ looks at sin. They're not viewing sin through Christ's eyes. And so in 1 John chapter 3, John says, Do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The point is, do not be led astray. Sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. You cannot have fellowship with God. Chapter 1, verse 3. As long as you hold on to the very thing that has separated man from God since the beginning of time, that thing being sin. And so the question comes up then, how can a real Christian enjoy what God sent Jesus to destroy? How can a real Christian, an authentic Christian, a, a, a disciple, enjoy what God sent Jesus to destroy? Uh, many of you remember this, this, this incredible story about Heather McNamara back in 2009. A little seven-year-old girl, 2009. They find inside of her abdomen a tennis-sized mass. It's attached itself to different, different organs. They've, they're trying the chemotherapy. It did not work. Situation seems hopeless because all of the doctors, at least initially, are saying that, that you know they think this is inoperable. There's nothing they can do. But the parents persist. And they keep going and going and going and going until they find uh, a Japanese doctor by the name of Tomoaki Kato who agrees and thinks that it may, be a, it may be possible to do the surgery. The surgery lasts 23 hours. It involves removing every vital organ in her abdominal cavity, her liver, intestines, both the, the large and the small, the liver, the pancreas, the spleen, the stomach. Some of these organs were able to be saved. Uh, some were not. They were put back inside minus the tumor. And about five or six, a couple of weeks later, Heather McNamara was able to leave the hospital. Now, it's, that was an intense surgery. 23 hours. And uh, Dr. Cato said that it's, he was so exhausted after he finished the surgery that he goes back to the, the surgeon's lounge and he sits or, and, and lays on the sofa for five straight hours. Cannot move. It's intense. Now, mankind is infected with sin deeply and profoundly. And it's taking more than just, you know, it's taking more than just good decisions to deal with it. And all the angels are wondering how it will be dealt with. The prophets, uh, we're told, are, are pondering what, what is this gospel going to be all about. How can God, who is pure light, deal with the cancer that is deep, deep, deep inside of us? And the answer is found, the, the answer appears in Bethlehem. And the writer of Hebrews says in, in Hebrews chapter 10, he said, first, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
And that becomes possible for Jesus to be able to do that because as John says in verse 5, in Him there is no sin. Jesus was able to destroy sin by being sinless Himself. And in that sinlessness, Jesus could stand, for, could stand in for you and for me. Now, I couldn't stand for you. You couldn't stand in for me. When it came to paying that penalty, to paying the, 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 uh, the, the guilt penalty for the crimes against God's good holy universe that we have committed and most, most in, in terms of, of prominence, that sinfulness against His person, it needed to be the one that was without blemish anywhere on His record. And He was willing in that perfection to put Himself in our place of execution because we're guilty. And that's why John is adamant that Jesus came in the flesh. The incarnation was God's way of reaching that cancer of sin that we're all infected with. And so going to the second chapter of Hebrews, this writer says, Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by His death He might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is, the devil, He might destroy the, him who holds the power of death that is the devil. You're catching the theme here. Destruction. Destroy, right? And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You know, there's this story that's told about uh, Houdini that uh, he was bragging about how he could get out of any prison, any lock. He was just, you know, he was, he was uh, very prideful about his abilities. And I understand that there was a, a new jail that was built uh, up in the northern part of England. It may have even been in Scotland. Uh, he, 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 he accepts the challenge, and he goes into the, the cell. They close the door behind him. Uh, they leave the room so he can work in, in private. He pulls out his tools. He's trying to pick the lock, pick the lock, pick. Nothing's working. After an hour, not tumbling. Two hours, three hours, four hours. The lock's not tumbling. And in expiration, Houdini puts his hand up on the door of the cell, and it opens. They had tricked him. He thought he was in a locked cell. And the reason he couldn't get out is because he thought it was like that he'd been freed all, the, all along. Now, when you think about it, that's what Satan does to us. We have been freed from our fear of death. Yet, we have been tricked into thinking that that cell door that has been opened to us by the blood of Jesus is still locked. The first step in the strategy of God to destroy the works of the devil was the incarnation, that is, the birth of the Messiah. The second step, though, requires another kind of a birth, my rebirth. And even though Jesus died on the cross, sin is still natural in the flesh. And that's why Jesus told Nicodemus that only those who have been reborn can enter the kingdom of God. will ever have a chance of seeing the kingdom of God. And that's why the incarnation, second point, makes possible regeneration. The old man can't say no to sin, but the new man can. And this is why baptism is such an important piece of, of, of our belief system. Baptism is where we are participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus according to Romans chapter 6. The point is that baptism, in that baptism, we understand that the answer to sin is not a modified life. That I'm just going to attach some virtues, hang some virtues on me like, like some Christmas ornaments, but that it is a crucified life, a life that has died with Christ. So that's why he says in Romans 6, we died to sin. How can we live it in any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a what, church? 
new life. That's why it's difficult to live a good life. I mean, external pressure is not a match for sin. In that case, we would have already passed enough laws, built enough schools to change the world. But the external pressures, the, the, the external uh, push cannot defeat sin. Your heart that has not been reborn cannot say no to sin. That's why God doesn't give you a new leaf, but a new life. He gives you a new heart. One that wants to say no to sin. And one that will say no to sin. You know, getting out of the New Testament for uh, just a, a minute... In Ezekiel chapter 36, you know, you have this this great passage where the prophets, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new what? Heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. It's, you know, it's not just a fixed-up old life, but a new life. And this is one of the signs of being an authentic disciple. You know, you, you, you have in one hand a, a, a pig, and you, it had to be a little one, and, and in the other hand you have a cat. And you let them loose, and they run in, and fall into a mud pit. One is going to love that mud. And one is going to hate it and fight to get out of it. John says in 1 John 3, verse 9, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Listen, in this version, and there's always a lot of confusion, John is not saying that we will never commit another sin. John has already said in the first chapter that to say that we do not sin or have not sinned is to speak falsely about our lives and about God. But what he's talking about is what the old commentators refer to as this settled habit of being habituated to sin. What he's talking about is falling into sin and reacting like the old nature, not caring, not fretting, not trying to fight your way out of it because you like it. You don't go on sinning because you hate it. And so the challenge for us in this, this text is for us, last point, for disciples to relinquish control to the Lord. In verse 4 he says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. You know, there's, there's so many things that you can say about this, but lawlessness is, in a, a, at its base, this attitude of rebellion. It's about wanting to live outside of parameters, outside of a, a stated will. It's, a, it's, it's about an attitude of rebellion against the one or the ones who have the right to determine what is right or wrong. And sin, in its essence, is the rejection of the authority of God. And that's what happened in the garden. And Jesus came to destroy that attitude in you and in me and all of us. And as we talk this morning, every day you pray for Jesus to take control of your heart. To take control of that, that heart, which in, in, when Paul was writing this, it was about being a, a control center. It was where all of your values were, were uh, acted out upon and where you placed your dreams and your hopes. What you do every day is to pray for Jesus to take control of your heart and to dwell in that heart. And you give up the right to run the, the universe, which was never yours to run in the first place. And you realize that a real Christian never settles for the presence of sin in their life. 
Uh, Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And, you know, the challenge for us tonight is, is, is to get our attitude about what it means to be a disciple in relationship to sin right. We don't settle for its habituated present in our life. Paul will say in Galatians chapter 5 that when you walk according to the Spirit, that is, as, as you walk according to the, the, this new life that you have in which God has poured His Spirit in you and you're living in accordance, in agreement with that, there are all kinds of beautiful things that blossom up in your life. If you were mean-spirited, you become gentle. If you wanted to fight everybody, all of a sudden you become peace-loving and a peace-endearing in, in, uh, uh, kind of an individual. You know, if you were always angry uh, about something, then you, 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 know, you become self-controlled. If your, your life was out of control with lusts and, and, and greed and these kinds of things, there, there were these, these out-of-control yearnings and longings, then, then self-control becomes evident in your life because that's the Spirit's way for you as a, a disciple with a new life and a new heart experiencing the effects of Jesus coming and destroying the works of Satan. That is, that's the new response to that. It's, it's being different. It's, 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 it's being different in, in such a way that, that that fellowship with God that is talked about at the very beginning of this book becomes a reality because the very thing that separates you from Him is the very thing that you hate as well. And, and what you're working towards is what He says in chapter 2, that all of us who claim to be in Him will walk as Jesus walked. And in, and in chapter 3, it's realizing that God has put His seed in us. That, that we will not keep on sinning as this habituated, settled state of affairs. But we'll be you know, creating this new vision for a life in which sin is a horrific, ugly thing. And as we grow closer to God and God's holiness, the, the, that those, those, as, as we talked this morning, as He displaces that darkness in us, as we, we are filled up with the fullness of the measure of Christ, then what happens is that that new heart becomes engaged in life every day. And we don't enjoy the things that, Satan, that, that, uh, that Christ came to destroy that, 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 you know, by the hand of Satan, the things that He has created as chaos and anarchy and destruction in this world. If, if you need to, to, to give your life to Jesus tonight in faith and to be baptized so that you die to the old man and receive that new life, that life that is alive in the Spirit, that is alive to God, that is, that is a son or a daughter of God, or if tonight you need the prayers of the congregation to strengthen your vision for what your life could be and should be and will be by God's power, then we have shepherds who are going to be down at the front to receive you that come down and speak to them as we stand and sing together.